I begin this evening's reflections, I'd like to invite us all to be clear that we're going to keep our practice alive as we listen. Often Dharma talks, there's not much going on during the day. So often food and Dharma talks are two bits of uh, entertainment. And it's, it's fine in a certain way. And another level, it's a wonderful place to bring daily life practice right here. So I invite us to keep our attention both listening, but also sensitive to the movements of whatever may be going on inside so that we keep awareness in the foreground of our experience rather than forgetting about it. Because I was always, the way I was trained to give Dharma talks was that they were uh, to move a retreat along. Often when I uh, received Dharma talks in Asia, the, it, in the Zen tradition, the teacher would just exhort us to try harder for a while and then get up and leave. <laughs> or if it was a personal interview, exhort us to try harder and ring the bell and kick us out. <laughs> Can't get away with that here. Uh, but there was something in the spirit which was very no-nonsense, which was very much about, this is about me, about my practice, about this life right here. And uh, so let's see if we can keep that spirit alive. Um, <clears throat> so we'll start where we were a little bit last time, uh, playing with, uh, finishing up with the playful analogy, or working a little more with the playful analogy I gave of the uh, cars, the hybrid car versus the gas car. And actually, Corrado, after my last talk, he said, oh, very good talk. And then the next day, he said, what's a Prius? <laughs> <laughs> Is that some new make that I never heard of? And uh, fortunately, in the parking lot next to my car are two Priuses. So uh, Corrado and I went somewhere, and he came back. Oh, OK. Toyota, OK. <laughs> Uh, so in, in one of the uh, yogi groups that I had, so I was sort of promoting uh, the hybrid, right? Or at least I was promoting some of the values. I was using it as a tool to promote certain attitudes in practice. Attitudes of relaxation of interest, wherever our mind was waking up. Uh, attitudes that it's actually, that in a certain way, wherever we wake up at any sense object, it's valuable, and in a very deep way, it's just as valuable as anywhere else, which is actually completely consistent with the four foundations of mindfulness, which is what we're practicing, right? The breath is just one. So, and I was saying that we could get, we could get some juice, some energy for our vehicle to move forward uh, by not just one object, say the breath, but by all of the senses, and then the sort of most important thing was that when we break, when something that we don't like comes up, a reaction, that actually that gives us energy, that recharges our battery, if we can be in the place where we can see it clearly. And so opening to those possibilities can really lighten our practice a little bit, if we can open into that attitude. So that's where we were. So in one yogi group, I one, one group, we were upstairs, and uh, someone was describing uh, their practice, and it was a lot of breath-based. Uh, 
And we went back and forth. And then she said, can I have two cars? Can I have a hybrid and a gas car? And I said, uh, yes, as long as you have a two-car garage. It's in New England. <laughs> and there was actually a lot of wisdom in what she had asked. Well, why? And some of my comments tonight are very much uh, in response to the flow of the retreat and what's coming up for people. Well, the cars are vehicles. And their purpose is to take us from one place to another, which uh, is from here to here in a fuller, clearer way. There's a journey. And they both can get the job done. So it's not that a hybrid actually will necessarily take you from suffering to the end of suffering, and working with the breath can't. Not at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, the breath, it's said that the Buddha was enlightened on the breath. It has wonderful strengths. He was enlightened because he could take it all the way to developing sati, mindfulness, in a continuous way, to developing concentration in a very clear, deep way, and then using the breath itself to see into the nature of experience. And I'll be talking later this evening about wisdom, about its function, how it surfaces, and how it manifests for ourselves and others. So, but breath, if we're interested in breath, it can take us all the way to seeing in a way that transforms our minds and hearts. So that's good. So why am I pumping the hybrid? Uh, well, the breath is usually used as a concentration tool, and it can be used as a wisdom tool. But if it's left as a concentration tool, then it's limited in what it can provide for us. So basically, it's our old friend attachment, an attachment to pleasure that comes from being able to sustain awareness on the breath, or any object of concentration for that matter, that unless examined, unless that attachment is examined and see how it forms and work with it, so it doesn't get the best of us, then we can become attached to the fragile conditions that support our concentration. And when they change, uh, that concentration, that continuity of awareness doesn't necessarily support wisdom. We all know this, don't we? I certainly know it very well. For, for many years, I primarily worked with breath. And there's a, a, actually a story, I think some of you have heard it, um, it's, in a, it's written in a book. I'm written up. My, my one claim to fame, since I haven't written any books, is being in one, part of one, uh, where a former girlfriend of mine uh, wrote a book called Blue Jean Buddha. And there's a whole chapter that's about me, except my name is Jasper. <laughs> no longer anonymous. And the title of the chapter is Perfect, The Perfect Buddhist Boyfriend. Of course, we didn't make it, and so the content of the chapter should have been the imperfect Buddhist boyfriend. And one of the highlights of this story um, was that one day Jasper was meditating nicely in his little room, and uh, we shared an apartment uh, on a campus in uh, Cambridge, 
a college campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, so it was kind of tight, and I had my little meditation time every day when I could get calm and steady. Ah, just my time. And she came in one day, and I was not happy. But I was really not happy. And I was really nicely, pleasantly abiding in my pleasure riding with the breath. And she broke it. And I got a little angry at her. So she featured this in the book, of course. I was reactive. <laughs> so there's the fragility of concentration when it's not coupled with awareness, when it's not coupled with, with wisdom. But then again, calm abiding can be wonderful, can it? If it's used skillfully, it's a wonderful resource. We get renewed and calmed. Uh, a lot of times our practice at home just is, is a bit of calming and steadying the mind. It's great to settle. It's even said that the Buddha himself, once he got fed up uh, with, with his monks and all the, oh, he's in the middle of a lot of, right, a whole religious organization, I guess. So he just disappeared. It's in, he just disappeared for a couple of months once. Two months, Grotto? Two months, okay. He's, I've got an expert next to me. <laughs> and uh, he came back after two months, and they said, where were you? He said, oh, I was, just, I was just practicing mindfulness of the breath, pleasantly abiding my time. So that was used in the service of wisdom there. Okay. So whichever vehicle, and so the, the, when we practice in a more open way, it's just as a fuller relationship with the senses from the start. But it's not saying it's the only way. So there's no hierarchy involved. We present it as a schema. You work with breath and you open it. Uh, but you can take breath awareness if you use it in the service of wisdom really to see impermanence. Uh, you can take it very, very deep and it can liberate the heart and the mind. So don't think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not that valuable. Okay? Now, the reason that we promote or we've been teaching the schema of breath and then breathing with is because our lives are very much mingled with changing field of sense experience, outwardly and inwardly. So last time I spoke of the mind, and it's incredibly important to be able to have some flexibility in how we meet the movements of mind and heart as they arise. So the attitudes that we can have uh, from, from a hybrid, getting fuel, getting energy from different sources, not just one, can be wonderful. And I hope that you've been experimenting. If it's your decision because you have to you experiment and you see what is most skillful to move your forward your practice forward. That's the important important part. So the open more open awareness can be used as a wisdom practice, right? First, it can be used as, as a stability practice if we can let awareness let the continuity of awareness build so it shifts from object to object naturally. We can also selectively use it in the way that we come back to the breath as something that breaks the power of a preoccupation that we have. So if we're really caught in a cycle of thought and image and mood that's dragging us down and we keep feeding it and just going around and around, we can come back to the breath, but we can also, sometimes we can use a skillful question, like Corrado used the question, who am I, which is used a little differently, but it's using thought in a skillful way. Well, we can use that just to change the channel in a way. We can say, you know, what else? What else is here? Or where is, where, is awakening, where is awareness arising now or anything? 
to help us use thought in a skillful way to break the pattern of being caught that helps us land in whatever's most immediate. So it can be, uh, it can be a wonderful way if it's something that is supportive. It can be a wonderful way to just, without coming back, being mindful of the breath, we, our practice is actually to be aware. So it's actually not choiceless awareness, it's choosing to be aware. And then we're allowing life, whatever is vivid, to dictate where we ground and steady our attention. So that's, so that's another way that we can use this open approach. Now, when we use the break analogy, then that is, there is some wisdom coming in there. Because then we're actually seeing into that which usually blocks. That which colors our mind. That which enables us not to see clearly. Our reactions are leaning into our rejection of things. Those are the energies which, if they're unexamined, they often get the best of us. And so we can't develop the qualities which lead to a free heart and mind. So if we can see into those, little by little, wonderful. So one teacher in Thailand, uh, Ajahn Mahaboa, who I worked with briefly, um, he said that you can either start with, in this schema, you can either start with grounding and steadying the attention on an object, which most people do. It's the classical way, so breath, and then you open it up. Or you can actually work in a way that's, you can work in vipassana first. You can work in a way where your senses are more open and you're seeing change from the start. And when you do that, sometimes that leads to calmness and steadiness in certain objects that before, if you forced your mind on them, start to become more accessible and more clear. So I'm putting this out there really in the service of, we're really in the, the place in the retreat where we're, we're making the practice our own and we can do it mechanically or we can do it in a way which is really serving uh, these five energies which, which I spoke of before, which are the qualities where the mind becomes, it has enough confidence to practice or faith to do the practice and we're all here so we have that. It has to be renewed as well, moment by moment, sometimes. Uh, where the mind uh, has energy, right? which comes from effort. And we were talking about this morning as working with proper effort and neither too tight nor too loose. The mind that is learning not to go out or to get sucked in, but learning to rest in a dynamic quality of being present that can meet life freshly in a continuous way. So we work with that. Interest itself is, is wonderful. Just being interested in, as the Karata Sutta says, being interested in the qualities of experience. Just their qualities. Just what's arising. Very simple. And letting that interest build energy itself. And then, of course, mindfulness, right? which is remembering to come back to what we said for ourselves, remembering to have awareness land, on one object or breathing with or remembering to have it land within the field of the four foundations of mindfulness, which that encompasses everything. I think it's actually quite wonderful. There's nothing in our experience that is outside the possible field of waking up to. We can wake up to it. Nothing. Because it's our life. And it's our practice. So mindfulness, 
concentration, either more steady with an object or more, uh, or more steady with moving objects, moving field. And so we may be working more primarily with the breath, which is more inwardly steady in that sense. The moving field is steady, but it's not doesn't have the same quality of calm, of ease necessarily. It has a different quality, a lighter quality, but they both serve. When they're steady and we're seeing clearly, they serve wisdom and learning. And that's what's important. That's what the journey is about. So I'd like to share... So we're in the time of the retreat where often we see things in a way that we might be learning. We might be learning to see in a different way. And that's what wisdom actually, it comes from the word vipassana, or it's the translation of the word vipassana, which means clear seeing or special seeing. Seeing that transforms our relationship to what we're seeing. And since it's in the mind and the heart, it actually transforms relationally, our mind and our heart. And we move from suffering, hopefully, uh, to freedom. Little bits. So I want to give a few examples from the groups of uh, how I've, I've heard some reports of people actually learning. Because it's good to learn, isn't it? That's what we're here to do. So one, one thing, and this is both with the breath and with more open awareness, um, so the first example uh, was from a, someone who was um, watching the breath in a way was quite diligent and noticed for the first time the four parts of the breath and the pauses in the breath. And the level of interest there woke up something very fresh and bright, just reported in a very beautiful way. Ah, oh, I've never seen that before. So it's a little learning. And that's a learning about the quality of, of, of concentration that can come up, steadiness of mind through interest. Someone else uh, who was working in a more open way reported that they were just walking and their attention was open and light, as best I remember. And then this wave of sadness came just uncalled for, un, you know, not looking for it, but open, clear, sens sensitive. This wave of sadness came and washed through her and passed away. And she was right there. And then she comments, she said, when you talked about the five strengths, the five powers, I thought I didn't have any faith. I don't know why I was here. She didn't have any confidence in the practice. She didn't. And then she said, and now I do. And that's a wonderful moment because the first definition of faith, it's actually, it, we need inspiration to get us to practice. So it, it gives us, it actually gives us energy. That's why it's before energy. It gives us energy to do the work of present moment awareness, clear seeing. Once you taste something, once you taste the fruits of practice, like that was clearly she saw an emotion arise, not particularly, and pass away, and saw it very clearly the whole track of it, and it happened naturally. Uh, that she said, "Oh, now I do have faith. Now I have, or now I do have confidence," and it's called verified confidence. It's when we taste fruits of the practice for ourselves; it becomes ours, and then we know it for ourselves, and then that 
reinvigorates, uh, in the schema, it reinvigorates the quality that we bring into, the energy we bring into the moment, because we see what it does. And the third example is, um, again, on the, someone working on the breath, who just saw, when they're watching the breath, that there was a lot of holding going on, not directly with the breath, but in the mind, because they were sensitive. And once they saw that holding, the quality of the breath released. And it was a real, it was a real insight for someone who'd done quite a lot of practice to see this. So the flavor of these insights is of, it's the flavor of letting go. When we see clearly, we let go of some tension, some constriction. And that's normally how we think of dukkha, as constriction. It's not just limited to unpleasant experience, but uh, it's letting go of that which binds our, and our hearts, our minds. Ajahn Chah said, <clears throat> everyone know Ajahn Chah, who he is? He's this great Thai force master, who, um, Ajahn Sumedho, who Neva uh, spoke of so, so well, is one of his, his leading, his first big Western disciple that came and brought the teachings to the West. Anyways, I had the good fortune of being with Ajahn Chah, but he, was, he wasn't speaking at that point. He wasn't in good health, but his spirit was strong. Uh, and he said, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you have complete peace. So can we make letting go happen? Or can we work only to create the conditions where it happens because it's natural for it to happen. Reflecting on our own practice, can we force ourselves? No, but we can work with the condition. We can force ourselves. We see how that works. But it's very important to work and to value. It's another attitude piece that is extremely important. It can make a whole difference in how we, how we approach our practice. Is that we're working to cultivate the causes and conditions of freedom rather than trying to get freedom. Because when we try to get freedom, it's exactly the same energy that blocks us from creating the conditions where it can naturally flower. So one, one of my favorite teachings actually is uh, from the uh, Bhagavad Gita. And it's, it's one of my favorite teachings. It's from a Hindu tradition, but it's one of my favorite teachings because after my uh, grandfather passed away, my mother's father, I was going through his things. I saw his wallet and I opened his wallet and this, was, this phrase was written on a piece of paper, which he carried with him everywhere, I guess. It said, act, but not for the fruits thereof. Act, but not for the fruits thereof. So we act. 
And in one way, the path is extraordinarily simple because we're asked only to be fully present. Is that correct? (laughs) But then once we get on the path, the actions that we do, there's a lot of different actions we can take. There's a lot of ways that we can skillfully cultivate the conditions where wisdom can flower. So you've heard a lot of different So it's very simple, and then it it gets more complex, or it gets more full in terms of what we do. So bring that spirit into what we do. Well, we've heard a lot of different ways here this, this week of how to cultivate the practice, haven't we? So how to cultivate wholesome qualities and not strengthen those that are unwholesome. As Corrado spoke about the Eightfold Path last night. Uh, Neva spoke beautifully about the power of tuning into and cultivating those qualities in the heart, which buoy the heart. So touching gratitude is a wonderfully powerful practice. And it points to, a lot of what she was speaking of, it points to the very dynamic and Often it's uh, not well understood or or there's a tension between the thinking mind, the reflective mind, and the mind that is invested in pure simplicity of seeing and wisdom. So gratitude, you reflect on gratitude, right? But it's wonderful in the qualities of, of loving kindness and compassion, et cetera. So I was walking the loop today, this three-mile loop, and I, and I remembered, because uh, I'm kind of an awareness-first guy, generally. I really appreciate just really the purity of seeing and investigation and interest, usually above all else. And I sometimes think, ah, oh, you know, generosity is great, gratitude's great. It is, but, and I know it, but then I kind of like don't, value it so much, even though I know it. Uh, And I actually have a habit of giving too much sometimes. If anyone is low on green tea, come over to my house. (laughs) I got a lot of extra. (laughs) And then friends come over and I try to pawn it off of them and they're like, no, no, let's not go over to Matthew's. We've got enough tea. But anyways, that's that's an aside. But I was walking the loop today And uh, I started just to remember, because I ran into an old friend, someone that lives on this this three-mile walking path, someone that's lived here for a long time, and we started chatting a bit. I hadn't seen her for many years. Owns the for sale house over there on the other side, which is going to be off the market. So if you want it, Saturday's the last day. (laughs) She said... uh, so we're sharing stories, and she was telling me how there were three elk that walked across the road there the other day that they saw. I didn't know there were elk here. Anyways, uh, but I was reflect. It's, I started to have memories. It brought back old memories. And I remembered uh, my first three-month retreat, which was actually 25 years ago. So this year, 25 years ago. And I remember being back in the annex, one of the small rooms in the back in the annex. And every night before I went to bed, I remember when I laid down, because I was asking people to practice, right, before you go to bed. 
I would lay down and I would just kind of check in and see what the quality of my effort was for that day. And I remember pre, if I had just given my best that day, really just brought my best to the day, there was a quality that was just, I really appreciated. Just the effort. And it wasn't so much if I'd had a good day or a bad day, but there was an appreciation in that. And then I, I do something that I actually learned from, uh, or I got on fire with, from Manindra, who was just a wonderful, sparkling teacher. And I used to work with him in Calcutta in the 1980s uh, for a while. And every night he would just sit there and he would, at the end of his practice, he would evoke all these beings in his mind and he would wish them all well. And he would share the, share the goodness of his heart with all these beings. And he had such a twinkle in his eye. And that's what I, and so I, I did that every single night. And I still do it. I just sit there and usually I do it actually for my grandparents first. I haven't thought about this for quite a while. Because when I graduated from college, they gave me $5,000. Seed money for graduate school or, I don't know, down payment on an apartment or something. I don't know. It, it carried me through like three years of practice in Asia. <laughs> <laughs> It was great. <laughs> so they're, first, they're usually first on my list. <laughs> uh, but So there's so many supportive conditions that we can work with in orienting the heart towards, towards the generative qualities, towards how we're being supported, towards how we, the efforts we put out, just, just showing up, just doing the work. Um, that, the, that so much of our mental attitudes can be very supportive. And it's not just straight awareness, is it? And the actions that come from them. As a matter of fact, in Asia, the teachings are usually taught. There's sila, samadhi, and panya. Right? I, I spoke about it in the beginning, where you do ethics. And Karato actually spoke of it. That's the Eightfold Path. The ethical part, uh, the concentration aspect, and the wisdom aspect. They all work together. But in Asia, the one that's taught before that even before you get to that often, is dana, is generosity. So that the power of opening the heart through expressions, and that can, that can express itself in so many ways. Uh, it can be you know, material gifts, it can be just time, energy, many ways. That, that actually opens the heart so that it's, it has the capacity to do the work to become free. And it's wonderful. So there's that whole level, and there's thought involved, and there's emotion, and there's generative qualities in that. And then there's the level of, of fine-tuning the techniques. Right? So we calm and steady. We try to work skillfully with either a more selective object or more open approach to practice. We work to refine the attention, etc. We work with how, uh, and how we work with how we, how much we eat. I'm sure we have you noticed. When you eat a lot, you might be sleepy the next meal. If you don't eat enough, you might be spaced out. So we, we work with the qualities of what we take into our body. We work with yoga, right, and walking ways that we condition the body to support the process, not just mindfully moment by moment, but also conditioning the next thing. So we work in so many ways. And then as the path progresses, we realize that all of these skillful means, they're done well, they all come back to simplicity.
they all come back to supporting this natural process of becoming mindful and seeing clearly. It's often, so we can simplify, we simplify these five powers down to just two. Sati and Sampajanya. Sati that is full and right, wise, and Sampajanya, which is clear comprehension, seeing wisely. And then it gets simpler than that. It's just seeing in the way that transforms experience in the moment. And that's what our practice is. We have to respect the process and respect where we are and learn to work skillfully with the different aspects of it, don't we? And we have to learn to be patient and appreciative. How many people wish they, had, they were further along the path than they are, or what they conceive of as the path? <laughs> so I have a question. When's the best time to plant an apple tree? No. <laughs> it's not now. It's 20 years ago. <laughs> it's okay, it's a teaching. When's the second best time to plant an apple tree? Now. Okay, good. <laughs> None of us want to be second best. We're not. <laughs> Has anyone seen the, the um, there's a beautiful film called The Man Who Planted Trees? It's a French film. I actually. It's a, it, I recommend it's a Dharma film, it's a silent film. And it's just a, it's animated, but it's a story of just one man who goes to this, um, it's, and it's fictitious, but it's around World War II, and he goes to an area where it's very barren, the trees have been destroyed, and he makes it his, life wor- his life's work to just plant, I think they're oaks, oak seeds. And it's just the story, it watches how beautifully, how mindfully he does every step and every single day. He goes out and it's these barren fields. And people think he's crazy. He just does it again and again and again. And that's what the movie is. And then time goes forward. And slowly you see the trees growing. And then they mature. And then you see birds and valleys. And the people who had all moved away because of the war, they all come back. And it's this beautiful expression of of the manifestation of something which in the moment just seemed like a very simple act that couldn't see any of the, couldn't, couldn't see the fruits of it at all. And he, was at, he, was, he said, why don't you stop? Take a load off, don't do it. He said, no, this is my work. So that ties us in with the other part of practice, which is, which is our hearts touching a quality which Corrado, and Neva have spoken of quite beautifully that peace is possible. And that not just peace, but compassionate response is possible as well. And that's a vision we hold. But we just go about planting our seeds. And that's the utter simplicity of bringing full care and attention to the moment. I'll have an aside. It's very interesting to use notes when you're not talking from them. (laughs) I said like 5% that's on here, and I keep turning the page. (laughs) 
Huh. <laughs> must be something good in here. I, have, I get to it. No, I looked down. Now I <laughs> lost my flow. So when, when we just plant our seeds, when we just bring full care and attention in the moment, and when the conditions are right naturally, when we respect and surrender and open to the process, then in moments we see in ways, I gave some examples from the retreat, from all of us here, just doing this work this week. And the last part I just want to reflect on, um, give a few quotes from classical ways in which the mind and the heart can open and then how that expresses itself. So I started quite a while ago with, um, and how wisdom can really, really, really open. Yes. So I I started with a a poem by Basho some days ago, which I want to read more of. So it says, go to the pine if you want to learn about the pine, or to the bamboo if you want to learn about the bamboo. In doing so, you must leave your preoccupation with yourself. Otherwise, you impose yourself on the object and do not learn. Perhaps our relationship from, with this teaching is a little richer now so that we see all the ways and we can actually take interest in the ways that we impose ourselves and do not learn. But it doesn't stop there. Your poetry issues of its own accord, your expression, when you and the object have become one, when you have plunged deep enough into the object to see something like a hidden glimmering there. So people have reported, one person reported in a group today of being in touch with nature in a way, where the colors were very, very vivid, sparkling. Maybe we've all had that experience in different ways here, when the conditions of more continuous awareness, interest, mindfulness come to fruition, where we start to see into things where a different said, there's, I just love it, there's a hidden, uh, something hidden glimmering there. So we see in a way that's not just solid, it's not just the object, but we see into. It's, and it can be seeing into a thought or a mood in a way that's less solid. It's, we don't grasp it. It doesn't spin us so much. Or it can be a breath when we feel that the body is really breathing itself. And there's just, just for a glimpse. And there's a glimpse of an energy that doesn't actually feel like it's ours. It's not a preoccupied energy. It's something that comes naturally when the conditions are right. And so we get that in nature sometimes. This is a beautiful poem uh, by an ancient Chinese master that says, there was only, there was me and the mountain. And then only the mountain remained. It was me in the mountain and then only the mountain remained.
So we, see, we can see it in nature. We get something of that. We get understanding uh, when we see into the conditions of things. And this is on a level of dropping an inner burden. When we see just the conditionality of experience and we stop putting blame on it, on others or ourselves. There's a famous story of a, uh, some man who was on a boat in a foggy river in the morning and this, something slammed into the side of his boat, another boat, and he started yelling at the boat. He said, how dare you? Watch where you're going. And then he got up and he went over to the edge of the boat because he didn't get a response. And he looked in, there was no one in the boat. And then his whole perspective changed. He realized, oh, it was a storm the night before. Poor fellow. His boat got loose from its mooring. So when we see clearly, can our minds and hearts become like that empty boat? Just understanding that things happen because of causes and conditions. And we can drop the burden of blaming self or other. It, we can see this with the mind itself, with the content of the mind itself. And I'd like to uh, give you a little Larry Dharma, if you don't mind. Is that all right? I'm going to plagiarize. No, I'm not plagiarizing. That's just writing. I'm not. It's just Larry Dharma. So this is one of his favorite teachings. And he gets it from Krishnamurti, who he said he was doing a, 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 re, a retreat with him, a workshop with him in New York City, I think, in the 60s or 70s. And uh, he, Krishnamurti came back. <clears throat> he went out to a jewel store, I guess. And, uh, and he came back, and he had something holding in his hand. He said, I, have a, I just saw the most magnificent jewels, and I have one for you. And he holds it up. He said, what is it? What is it? And he goes, it's your fear. <laughs> so this is a Larry original now. This is Larry Rosenberg gave this, gave this poem. I spoke with him briefly yesterday. He sends his best. He's doing well. Uh, he gave this poem. I said, I'm going to use one of your poems, Larry. And then he said, oh, my one and only poem. <laughs> so this is it. <laughs> Where is peace to be found? In the same place as sorrow. How convenient. Oh, sorry. How convenient. enough? <laughs> Two more. Ready? So here's the power of awareness. The mystery of it as it manifests outwardly as well as inwardly. And this is from Gendun Rinpoche. Awakened awareness spontaneously manifests all the qualities of compassionate action. Awakened awareness 
the bare simplicity of this, spontaneously manifests all the qualities of compassionate action. And the last one, with the compassion, this is from Longchenpa, another Tibetan master, quite ancient. With the compassion that does not arise, does not cease, and is selfless, being for others is always available. It does not need to be brought about. So from Gendun, awareness spontaneously manifests as compassionate action. And then compassion, which is this natural flowing of awareness, does not cease and is selfless. It's a natural function of the heart. When it's realized, it's potential. Being for others is always available. And this being for others is being for others on the outside. But it's also there being for others on the inside. The others, the splits off parts of ourselves. Being for others does not need to be brought about. So let's sit for a minute. Where is peace to be found? In the same place as sorrow. How convenient. <laughs>